Like Abby, I share a, a high enthusiasm for the holiday season. It's upon us, which means that chaos has or will envelop our peaceful homes. Uh, you know, some people love the chaos, some people hate it. One of the reasons I love Christmas Vacation is to get to watch for free on TV the movie Christmas Vacation over and over and over again. It's a holiday staple. You do realize, because I properly exegeted this movie and, uh, and my analysis of it, uh, Clark actually left to go hang up the lights to get away from the chaos. I mean, there is this scene when the in-laws show up and it's loud and, and he's like, I'm going to take care of a project. So he finds a space of quiet in his world. Chaos, for some, is actually really enjoyable. For me, I love having my kids home. Love having their friends come over. Uh, this year, however, we have a new addition of chaos, and that is our puppy, who is a pit bull Labrador mix. To say the least, he is high love, high torque, and high maintenance. Our biggest challenge is teaching him not to chew everything, which apparently is in his nature as a pit bull. And that includes anything you leave on the counter. One particular morning I was outside at my table having my devotional time in a hurry left my Bible that was given to me as a gift by the Sojourn Network on the table outside I came home to watch this thing shredded and all over my backyard and so I grabbed the puppy and I said you better thank the Lord Jesus that you were born into a Christian home (laughs) because if this were a Muslim home and you did that to the Quran This would be your last day. So he's particularly grateful that we're believers. Family chaos for me is wonderful. But I understand, and new moms more than anyone can appreciate this, new dads too, I suppose, that it is difficult to find quiet space. We conclude our nine-week study in 1 Corinthians today with a look at one final area that is considered a fault line in the local church. This entire series has been about uh, us being careful as we move forward as a church and, and not falling into areas that many of us have seen in our church experiences, areas that have created division in the church, and that was certainly the case with the Corinthians. We are broken people called together to form a community that is centered on Jesus and his gospel of grace. This community is to be Christ-centered, meaning that Jesus alone is the focus of our worship, both as individuals and corporately, communally. The purpose of our church is to make much of Jesus through all that we do. He is the end of what we are trying to get, not the means to some end we think we may desire. The worshiping of Jesus in spirit and truth is why PRISM makes our public worship the starting point for our missional efforts. You know our mission statement. It's on the back of our sign out front. We use and believe that church is supposed to be a place where believers are reintroduced weekly to the grace and love of Christ. That revives us, and that produces in us a desire to share the vibrant excitement of our relationship with God with others. And then corporately, we find ourselves, after reaching friends, 
collectively representing Jesus through things like our mercy ministry that was talked about this morning. And this is part of an effort to renew culture. All of it is about Jesus. The church's mission is about the exaltation of Jesus and his desire to bring his kingdom into our lives, whether we live in this country or another. Church is most certainly not about a political agenda. You might find that uh, would be uh, uh, logical, but I have to tell you that in many cases, uh, that has been confused. And this past week, uh, and I came across a quote-unquote worship song that will make your heart sick if you're really a believer. This so-called worship song was entitled, Make America Great Again. Step into the future, joining hand in hand and make America great again. People would actually sing this somewhere in their church. They're, they each have a CCLI license number that you have to put on the screen when you sing to this song. I thought you had to mention God or Jesus in your worship song to get a CCLI license. I said to Joe, if we ever sing this song in church, one of us will be leaving our staff soon. And he said, if you ever make me lead in this song, uh, uh, you'll be looking for a new worship minister. So we're in agreement. This will not be mixed into the chorus of songs we sing to Jesus. See, worship is about God. He is served, not us. We worship to bring him joy. And today we're going to talk about worship service disorder as one of the fault lines in church. It's our final look at a way that we can potentially avoid division. And many of us have been a part of churches where worship, how it was done, what went on in it, where it took place, these became fault lines where division in a church actually occurred. We'll see from today's text that the byproduct of mature ordered worship is our being built up, but it is not our primary impetus for coming to church. And immature Christians, like I would say I was for many, many years, would come to church and I would say, I need to go to church for me. What's in it for me? You go in thinking, I, I want to receive from God. And, and that was the entire purpose of coming to church, was the idea that I was going to go and I was going to be entertained or I was going to be you know, ministered to by someone. In my mindset was never primarily this notion that I was coming to give honor to the Creator. Now, I do think that there is something that happens in that experience, as I said, as a byproduct. Orderly worship, though, matters to God because God wants people to see all of us in our proper place. He is worshiped, His servants are worshipers, and that includes the minister. And many of the problems, many a church, are that the minister has become the person that is celebrated and worshipped instead of the creator. So how do we know at our church what constitutes mature Christian worship? And we've said all along that our final authority in all of this is the word of God, God's word. And to underscore our commitment to scripture, I want to take us, we're we had read, and we'll look through and study verses 22, 20 through 33 in 1 Corinthians 14. But at the very end, Paul once again 
makes a declaration about uh, the primacy of God's word and the place of God's word as it contrasts with encouraging words or movement of gifts within a context of a church. And so I want to read this because I, I want us to all, at least if you're going to call prism your home, understand that we see Paul's authoritative teaching as distinct from any gifts that might operate within the context of a church. And Paul actually saw it that way. He writes in 1 Corinthians 14, Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? Just as a quick footnote, this is often the way people who think they've achieved a level of spiritual superiority think. They think they're the only ones who've seen the truth. Paul is asking the Corinthians these questions. He then goes on to say, If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. Sees a difference between his authoritative word given by the grace of Jesus and the confirmation of the other apostles as being the word of God. He has this in his head. And he's contrasting that with any movement that might be taking place in the local church to build each other up through spiritual gifts. These words of encouragement or words of knowledge or sometimes it would be called prophecies. But that doesn't necessarily mean somebody was making a prediction of the future, a a prophecy in this case is talking about the proclamation of the word of God. And and so read through a charismatic church lens, that would mean somebody had some kind of personal revelation. And and you see it in those ways. But in reality, we, we have this experience going on in our church where someone would walk up to you and say, you know, I just have an encouraging word for you. Or, you know, I just, I feel like I want to share this with you. Or I was praying about you and you know this thought came to mind that I wanted to share with you it's not necessary uh, to paint that as some supernatural experience that it wasn't I mean it is a supernatural experience if the spirit of God lives in you and you desire to share an encouraging word or some kind of insight with somebody a piece of wisdom that's drenched in scripture we consider that to be the active working out of the prophetic word in our midst. It has been characterized in 20 and 21st century charismatic churches as some type of experience where I'm hearing from God and then I'm going like almost, you know, dictating to you what he's saying to me. But we don't even think that's how the scriptures were recorded. We, we think the scriptures came through the creative impulses and gifts that were a part of both the Gospels and the letters, we've never, as, as Christians, Protestants, Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, no one has ever claimed that a writer of a portion of the Scriptures was sitting there going, what's that, Lord? Okay, let me write this down. What's that, Lord? Okay, I'll write that down. So somehow or another, it got retranslated that the gift of prophecy was this me hearing from God and then saying, thus saith the Lord, just so like, you know, I was some kind of Old Testament prophet standing on a rock in the middle of the desert. This is really talking about us encouraging one another, bringing forth the word of God as 
We are directed and empowered by the Spirit in our lives. Orderly worship is founded on scriptures. And we're told from Paul, these are the parameters for what's acceptable in worship. Now, the danger posed by a lack of commitment to Scripture is that experience will begin to dictate belief and not the other way around. The shared root problem of both liberal Protestantism and unrestrained charismatic Christianity that leans into being almost cultic is that both of these expressions have this notion that thinking and reasoning take a backseat to a mystical sense of what one's emotions or feelings or experience might have taught them or communicated to them. In the charismatic world, the end result of that is what was produced in the 90s, a movement called the Holy Laughter Movement. And this is this one particular evangelist would go around and lay hands on people and they would start giggling uncontrollably and flop around, and this was supposed to be an evidence of the spirit moving. No scriptural direction about this ever taking place in the church. No directive or impulse from scripture that we should even pursue this. But somehow in somebody's mind, this experience would have made the difference in helping them come to know Christ. And you say, well, what's the problem with that? Well, the problem is is that when you do that, there's no end to where you could end up. As well, uh, that kind of thing seems to contradict what Paul is saying in the text, which is that there's an order to worship, and that orderly worship is important. I remember one of the central prophets of this movement on Christian TV saying, this back in the 90s, the kind of memory I have, is he said, leave the realm of reason and come into the realm of spirit. Dallas Willard, in his book, the late Dallas Willard, wrote in Renovation of the Heart, the prospering of God's cause on earth depends on well. Today we are apt to downplay or disregard the importance of good thinking to strong faith. And some, disastrously, even regard thinking as opposed to faith. I remember being a young kid in a charismatic church, not having a tremendous level of biblical literacy or theological knowledge, feeling guilty being the one going, is this really right? Where do you get that from? Explain that to me. I don't believe that's really real. And having people judge me for being critical or non-discerning or against the God's anointed one. But 1 John 4, 1 says, don't believe every spirit, but test them to see whether they're from God. The Apostle John says, many false prophets have gone out in the world. And so it is the responsibility of a Christian to say, wait a second, (laughs) I'm not going to let this poison into my system. I'm going to actually assess whether this is from God. And Paul, in this section of our scriptures today, is going to encourage that too. Michael Horton, professor of uh, systematic theology at Westminster and Escondido, has a great book out called Ordinary. In this, he says the answer to progressivism and traditionalism is the same. Being open to the never-changing and yet always new power of God's word is our only norm for faith and practice. So let's allow the parade to pass us by as it marches behind the next big thing. 
Psalm 19, verses 7 through 8 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. We are committed to God's word, guiding what worship will be for us. Now, on a personal level, Beyond any theological error, I can tell you as somebody who was a full-blown participant in the charismatic movement as a young Christian, that there are three distinct sort of cultural implications. There are three things that get produced by disordered worship. And, And the first is a sense that you're not considered spiritual unless you demonstrate gifts like the leaders. And some theological circles, some churches, including the one where I really gave my heart to the Lord, would say, you're not filled with a spirit unless you pray in tongues. So perhaps you came from one of these places that said, you can't even know the fullness of the spirit unless you've had some extra experience that would validate that you really are growing in Christ. Another distinct feeling that one would get is that when you bring outsiders into disorder, they think you're crazy, and rightfully so. You know, the, the scriptures are particularly clear in our passage today that, that there isn't to be this clanging of symbols where we're all praying in tongues out loud as if that were possible today, and, and that that would be unhelpful to all involved. And yet I have been, and I'm certain there are some others here, have been in charismatic churches where the leader of the worship movement or the the sermon would actually encourage people, let's all pray in tongues together out loud. And I've actually been there and thought to myself, I'm fairly sure the scriptures say we're not supposed to do this. But you get swept up in whoever is the super leader thinking that this is the spiritual thing to do because in many ways they felt like, well, the Lord spoke to me and told me I was supposed to do that. And when we reference back what Paul was saying, he said, if you think you heard something from the Lord, let me tell you something. I'm dealing the word of God here, final authority, and there isn't to be disorder. So if you think you heard from the Lord to tell you to do something and I'm telling you not to do, it wasn't the Lord. But so many people don't want to hear that. They're almost afraid to hear that. And the third byproduct of disordered worship is that believers will often get a distorted picture of a God of order who really is a God of peace. And our church has a heart to help people who have wandered from church, not because they didn't want to love God or didn't want to know God, but because they got fried on some really funky theology somewhere and decided forget the whole thing because I can't trust people. I can't trust church. This is weird and strange and I feel bad telling people at this place that it is weird and strange. But Scripture says it's not only okay to look at some things and say that's weird and strange, but it's normal, natural, and it's what you're commanded to do if it's not from God. This is the essence of Paul's message. We we want God to be seen in worship. And hence, my ambition today is not to dissect the practice of spiritual gifts within the Corinthian church or how it should manifest in a local church, so much as it is I'd like to look at what principles are at the heart of what Paul considers to be healthy, mature worship. What actually is supposed 
to be accomplished in worship. And we begin with Paul's words in verses 20 through 22 of 1 Corinthians 14 and say that mature worship lifts up an orderly God. The goal of mature worship is to very clearly place the God of creation in visible sight. That's why we're careful about the songs we sing. Joe does a terrific job, Brooks before him a terrific job of saying, does this song really represent the character and majesty of God or our experience in interacting with the character and majesty of God? Because we want God to be seen in that. We do communion every week because we want God to be seen. We are careful to make the word of God, which is the revelation of who he is, the central piece of our worship, not because we want to hear from a super prophet, but because we want the word of God to show us who God is. Mature worship puts God in the right place. By contrast, Paul was telling the Corinthians, that's not happening in your church so much. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. He's telling them they need to grow up. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it's written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers but for believers. Let me explain what Paul is saying here, because he's making a very specific reference to an Old Testament prophecy about the gospels coming to a people And one of the means of doing that was going to be what happened on Pentecost. You can read about it in Acts chapter 2. In a historical redemptive timeline, you would have seen God's Spirit make a, a big show of His presence in the Old Testament when the tabernacle was moved in the desert as that Spirit came and went from the tent of meeting as they moved their way through Sinai. The Spirit of God would be seen in smoke and billows of clouds and And it was so that people would know for sure the presence of Almighty God was in the center of our community. It was in our tabernacle. When the Holy Spirit began to live in the souls of human beings, we are called the tabernacles of God, the temples of God, a similar thing happened on Pentecost. The Spirit of God came in, and one of the manifestations of this entrance of the Spirit of God into the people of God was in the upper room, tongues of fire. And then in public, it was people speaking in other languages. And as people had gathered for this festival of Pentecost, what happened was as people were hearing the proclamation of the gospel in their home language. So what Paul is saying in this passage of Scripture is he's referencing that. He's saying, you know, tongues really was about the proclamation of the gospel to people so that it would be another language, they'd hear it. Prophecy or the proclamation of gospel truth, the word of God in your own language, is designed to build up believers. Maturity in worship recognizes that God is doing all of this in worship, that he's reaching believers and non-believers. I've heard super orthodox people say, you know, we should never worry about unbelievers in church. And you cannot read this passage and think that God does not want you to be concerned about non-believers and about being culturally comprehensible to the people in your world so that they can see God and know God. Mature worship wants God to be seen, wants his order and his peace to be seen. So obviously, 
you're concerned about people who do not know Jesus because they're going to be a part of our community. We want people who are learning and growing and investigating to be a part of our worship community. But God is also working in the life of believers and churches got to be careful not to become man-centered. That the focus of worship and awe is now the instead of Jesus, the gifts of the worship minister or the eloquence of the preacher or the wonderful light show, which in some churches is done presumably to make worship more lively. But in reality, whenever attention is directed away from Jesus Christ, he's not the one seen. People will worship, they just won't worship Jesus. They'll just worship super prophet or worship leader guy or some other component of worship. There really are two opportunities along these lines that are spoken of in verses 23 of 25 in 1 Corinthians 14. The first opportunity is spoken of in verse 23 where Paul writes, If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you're out of your minds? And so the first opportunity we have is that we can freak out unbelievers here at our church if we really want to. It's an opportunity laid before us. Just pray out loud as a group. The scriptures in 1 Corinthians 13, which we read at weddings, talks about love being absent and there being like a, it being like a clanging gong. And, and in reality, have you ever gone to a symphony and, and, and when you have instruments, they're, they're finely tuned. They take great, great effort to make sure that it's all working in concert with one another. And, and skilled musicians that work the gong only do it at the right time, not in the middle of some beautiful concerto, just, just swing a bong. Uh, because this is disruptive and distracting and unhelpful. Believers are going to be distracted by all of that. They're going to see chaos and think, this is stinking weird. I had a friend once say, people already think we're weird for being Christians without us being weird about being Christians. And this is what Paul's saying. He's saying there's order. There's an order to this, and it's purposeful. And the second opportunity we have here is that when unbelievers hear clear messages rooted in Scripture, they will see God amongst us. I love this. Verses 24 and 25. But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, and this again, this is words of encouragement, truth, inspired by God, drenched in Scripture, if we're all speaking these to each other in our language, in our common language, and an unbeliever comes in, this is what it says, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. This is not saying, just for the record, that there's some supernatural prophecy going on that's going to all of a sudden reveal the secret of your heart publicly. You're being convicted by the word of God that you're hearing. You're being exposed to the secrets of your own heart. You're sensing, I can't keep this from God any longer as if he didn't already know. I must confess this to him. And the scriptures say, When that happens, an unbeliever comes into our midst. They fall on their face. They worship God too. 
Psalm 99, verses 1 through 3 says, The Lord reigns, let the people tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. For all of us, our worship of God results from a spirit-empowered comprehension of the realities of the gospel. We speak them to each other. Led and, and guided by the Spirit, we speak words of encouragement, inspired by God's Spirit living in us to each other. The word is preached. And it's not like I come up here and I wing this. I actually prepared and strategized. And this is how God prophetically comes to us. He didn't give me a message and like as court stenographer, I took it down and I'm just reading it verbatim to you. The Lord works in our midst through his word. Orderly, comprehensible worship enables us to worship God with our hearts and with our minds, with, in spirit and in truth. Again, the late Dallas Willard writes, Quote, we must seek the Lord by devoting our powers of thinking to understanding the facts and information of the gospel. This is the primary way of focusing our mind on him, setting him before us. When we do so, we will be assisted by God's grace in ways far beyond anything we can understand on our own. And the ideas and images that govern the life of Christ through his thought life will possess us. What is the danger in not having Scripture guide your practice? Well, sometimes people will speak stuff into your life, and if you think that what they're saying has some real effect on your life, you might start doing silly things or thinking silly things. A year ago, I had somebody come up to me in our church, a year ago this month, and say after church they were visiting, and they said, I think I have a word from the Lord for you. Now, I'm all open to hearing from God. So I'm like, bring it. And this is what they said to me. Time's up. I said, wow, that's sort of cryptic. You know, what does that mean? I don't know, but time's up. And so I talked to John and Chris about it. I talked to our staff about it. And we realized in obedience to the scripture, that wasn't from God. And it's okay to say that. It isn't a denial of the Spirit's movement in our life. Why did somebody feel like they needed to say that to me? I don't know. Human beings are broken. They want to be seen as having something important to say. They want to be seen as being particularly spiritually gifted. And let's give people the benefit of the doubt. They may have meant well. But just because people mean well doesn't mean they're right. I, I for months, joked around with Carolyn, you know, and she'd, I'd say, I need a back rub. And she'd say, I'm busy. I'd say, time's up. I got a prophecy. Come on in here and give me the back rub I need. I was trying to apply God's word as given to me prophetically. I seriously... There is a danger in monkeying around with something that doesn't even exist in Scripture, hasn't even been taught in Scripture. And while we believe, and I am a guy who would have had charismatic gifts and has a gift that I think would be constituted as charismatic, we won't go into that today because it's irrelevant to our discussion because what I'd like to say is our church doesn't deny that the Spirit moves in its giftings. What we won't do is create an extra biblical set of practices that somehow or another jumpstart all of this into our life in church. 
We won't have a school of spiritual healing unless it's going to be just James 5 studied over and over again about how you call for the elders and they anoint you with oil. We're not going to make up stuff because somebody's experience told them this will make this happen in your church. There's danger in that, especially when Paul has said orderly worship has a purpose. And part of it is that mature worship exalts the character of God. It lifts up an orderly God. Here's the second piece of Paul's instruction to us. Orderly worship builds Christians in maturity. The purpose, the byproduct of worshiping God is that we grow in our maturity, our understanding of who he is and how he wants us to live. What then, brothers, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 14, 26, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. So right away, Paul is saying there is going to be in your church an order, a liturgy, if you will. There is a way to go about it in a worship service so that your people actually know what's going on. Now, it's funny because people from super-duper Orthodox Reformed churches come to our church, and for any of us who've been in charismatic churches, it's funny to hear people say it, but they do. They go, your church is sort of kind of like freewheeling and like really out there. And I'm like, you're kidding me, (laughs) you know, because I've been to some crazy churches, and our church is like really tame. But if you come from a church that's associated with a super orthodox pastor and a very rigid understanding of what can be practiced and how it should be practiced in a worship service, even our church service will seem a little loosey-goosey. But most of the time what happens is, is that people from charismatic backgrounds will come into our church and say things like, this is cold. I don't feel like this place is, you know, I don't feel the sense of the spirit here. One of the difficulties they had in Corinth and many churches where some of us have been in attendance is that there is an equation created whereby order was seen as cold. The frozen chosen of Presbyterianism hold this moniker with a certain level of pride, I might say. The, def- the definition of mature worship in charismatic circles is how one felt during worship. My sensory experience was at all capable of discerning what God's Spirit was doing. I have said to myself, and certainly have heard people say, not just here, but I've heard it more in my past church experiences, quote, I just didn't sense the Spirit there. Now, you've got to unpack what somebody's saying there, because it's pretty amazing. If I was to say something like that, the operative word would be, I... I don't sense the Spirit, but that in no way is a determining factor as whether or not the Spirit was at work. If I don't sense the Spirit, the Spirit's not dead. It's possible I am. One thing for sure, that type of statement is the epitome of arrogance. It presumes that my spirit detector, as if that were a real gift, was so sensitive that I would presume that something was wrong with your worship service before I would even consider that there are other reasons for my senses not to have picked up on the Holy Spirit's movement, my mood, my physical condition, the grief I experienced yesterday as my Mountaineers tanked their second game in a row. All of these things could negatively affect my sense of the Spirit. You think I'm joking. I am not. My own biases, my own brokenness, 
Additionally, it's clear from this verse that God mandates order and worship so that all can comprehend what's going on and be built up in their faith. In other words, order doesn't equal dead, quite the opposite. Making sure there is order is what produces life. We all have two more directives to read from in verses 27 through 33 of 1 Corinthians 14. The first is that leaders in the church always oversee what's being taught. You see that in verse 29. Let two or three speak and let the others weigh what is said. So even when there's these gifts in play, you've got a group of authoritative people, wise, mature people that are supposed to be saying, is that from the Lord? So when somebody comes up to you and gives you a cryptic word from the Lord, don't take that as if you're supposed to swallow it hook, line, and sinker. You're supposed to take that thing and test that baby. You're supposed to take that to people and say, what did you think of this? Is it possible this was even the Lord guiding and speaking through somebody? Does God's word say anything in contradiction to this? Does this even make sense? The second thing is that God is not glorified by confusion and worship. If a revelation is made, it says in verse 30, let, their, let the first be silent, for you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. In other words, you can't say the spirit just led me. I had to do it. No, you have the capacity to control what it is that you're going to say and what you think the Lord is going to say through you. Verse 33, God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. His peaceful majesty is not seen. The purpose of gifts within the context of church is to build others up, point them to the Lord, and build us all in our understanding of who he is and what it means for his spirit to live in us. God's standard for mature worship is a people who produce the fruits of the spirit in their lives, as opposed to a supposed demonstration of one's spiritual gift in a Christian assembly. You can have a gift and be completely immature spiritually. God's goal for you is that you demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit. Being built up means that we grow in both our understanding of His majesty and our love for Him. And that's expressed through the development of the fruits of the Spirit through obedience to His commands. Psalm 119 verses 9 through 11 says, How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from, wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Commenting on the abandonment of the ordinary means of growth like God's word for a culturally manufactured experience as we've seen throughout the 20th century and into the 21st century, Dr. Horton once again reminds us that history has repeated itself often, especially during the 500 years of Protestantism in Christianity. He writes, This has been the vicious cycle of evangelical revivalism ever since, a pendulum swinging between enthusiasm and disillusionment rather than steady maturity in Christ through participation in the ordinary life of the covenant community. The regular preaching of Christ from all of the scriptures, baptism, the supper, the prayers of confession and praise, and all of the other aspects of ordinary Christian fellowship are seen as too ordinary. You may long for something from God, and He may choose to move powerfully in your life in that way. 
And I'm certain all of us could say we long for a deeper experience of God. And there's nothing wrong with that. And there's nothing wrong with praying to God, Lord, I'd really like to experience you at a deeper level. But he has given us his word already. He has spoken already. He has given us a treasure trove of words from the Lord. And I doubt that any of us have mastered them to the degree that we feel like we have to go someplace and get some more that are just outside of this word. I think between the Spirit's presence in our lives and His Word, we could encourage each other with what we have. And that's really the ultimate goal of church is that we would be built up. Orderly worship builds Christians in maturity. And orderly worship builds Christians by exalting Christ to the highest place. Communion for us is that too. Scripture commands it for our benefit we have a tangible representation. The word of God has been spoken. Do this to remember what I've done for you, Jesus said. This physical representation is more than just a symbol. It's a, an opportunity to experience the Lord, to have his grace infused into us. It's what we hope that our worship will be. See, worship, like several other topics we've covered in the last couple of months, can be a place of great division in a church if you're not careful. We've chosen that Scripture would be the guide for our faith and our practice, and we believe that staying on that course is what will keep us from falling into this crevasse, this fault that would divide a church in two. My prayer is that we could, as a church, as we grow, apply all of these things and pray for God's grace to protect us so that he would be glorified in our unity. Let us pray.